0: Baptist Bible Fellowship is one of uh, several organizations and denominations and fellowships that we're a part of as LifeBridge. And, you know, who can't uh, heart be moved by seeing these pictures? And you've been seeing them on social media, on news. And as Christ followers, we can't help but want to reach out. Amen. That's just what Christ would do and that's what his body wants to do and we want to do that and so we're just asking you to begin to pray and prepare for an offering for next Sunday and we'll take that offering next Sunday. There'll be a variety of ways for you to give but just want you to pray about that this week and pray what you would give. This is over and above our tithe and our faith promise. Our faith promise uh, special projects will add to what we collect and be able to begin this process. The good part of it is it's with uh, a dozen or so, a little over a dozen uh, local churches right there in Houston who have been devastated themselves. They're, many of their buildings have been flooded, and yet we know the church is not the building, it's the people, and they as a people want to mobilize and capture this moment to minister to the diverse ethnic groups there in Houston and Louisiana, but we're focusing on the Houston churches. And so it's an opportunity for every uh, dollar we give to go directly to pastors on the ground who themselves have been affected. In fact, the state chairman who will be managing this already led his church through a flood relief in 2013. And, uh, and I, I, I was able to see the pictures of that and just imagine our church just totally flooded and what it would take. Uh, financially, and yet, throughout rebuilding their building, his heart was constantly moving out to uh, distributing needs and funds to the people that they ministered to, and and that's what we're called to do. And so, exciting opportunity to take part of. Amen. So, begin to prepare yourself, prepare your family, and uh, we'll give you more details on that uh, throughout the week. Check our Facebook page, our social media. We're on Instagram, Vimeo and uh, Twitter and all that that jazz, and uh, you can check our website at wearelifebridge.com. Well, President Trump has asked us as a nation to have this day be a day of prayer for the uh, people who have been uh, devastated by this flood. So as a body, uh, we're called to be a people of prayer. Amen. And uh, instead of griping about all the things that are going on in politics and government, when our president calls us to pray, we should pray. Amen? So let's go to him as a body and pray. Father, we come and we praise you that you are a God who is with us in the fire and in the flood. You are sovereign over every drop of rain that falls. None of this has surprised you. And you are sovereign over all of it, Lord. And you are a redeemer in a fallen world filled with floods and earthquakes and disease and death and sin. And we're thankful, Lord, that all of this can be used of you to bring more people into your kingdom. And we're thankful, Lord, that in this you can be glorified and people can see what really matters in life. And so, Lord, we lament for the loss of life, loss of family members, loss of of some who are probably missing and no one knows where they are. They're wanting to be rescued, and they're not sure if they will be. Lord, we, we lament the loss of property, the loss of opportunity. It will take years for this city and this region to recover. And yet, Lord, we also repent of our own idolatry in worshiping the things that we own. And Father, I pray that we as a body would be reminded at a time like this to hold very loosely that which you have given to us, that we would not be hoarders, but we would be channels of blessing, that we would use that which you have given us Even this building, Lord, is an opportunity to serve others as a church body. And Lord, we ask, we ask that you would rescue those who are still in need. You know where they are and you know how to get people to them. We pray, Lord, for safety of those who are involved in disaster relief, that you would protect their lives as they seek to save the lives of others. Lord, we ask for mobilization of funds that we can be a part of that mobilization and we pray that personnel resources and and material and financial funding will go to the places where it is needed and father above all as a body of believers we pray for salvation to be the result of this disaster We pray that you would get the glory and the honor and the power that we sang about, that that would be demonstrated and people would come out and cry out to you, having lost everything and realizing the thing that's most important is a relationship with you. And so, Father, as a church, we yield ourselves not only to give to the people of God, that are in another state, but, Lord, we yield ourselves as a body to look for those who need rescuing right here in our community, that we would be a gospel-sharing and a gospel-living people. And all God's people said, amen.
1: If you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And while you are standing, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We will be reading verse 21 this morning. And if you did not have a Bible, please feel free to use a Pew Bible. And you can find 1 John chapter 5, verse 21 on page 710. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. Father, I just thank you for this summer series. I thank you and I praise you of how it's spoken to my heart. And Lord, I pray that it has spoken to many more. Lord, I thank you that our hope is in you, that you are with us through the highs and lows, the pain, the sorrow that this world brings word but you sent your son who came who died on the cross for our sins giving us a promise of eternal life that this world will pass away lord i again think of the residents of houston my friends other individuals that this congregation knows lord that you would just be with them comfort them guide in their relief efforts be with those that are ministering your word i pray father be with Pastor Bruce this morning as he closes this series. In your name I pray, amen.
2: As we come to this final message in our summer series, Assurance, a series where we've gone through the book of 1 John, I kind of picture John like this painting coming up on the screen by Moreau. I picture him as an older man with white hair, this long flowing beard, A gentle man and yet with flashes of fire in his eyes. That's my imagination, that's my picture of John. Having been a disciple of Jesus Christ himself for three years and and now the pastoral leader of the church in the city of Ephesus, John has seen a lot and he has been through a lot. And so John writes this little book here that we've taken now 14 Sundays to go through. He writes with great compassion, but he also writes with great concern. He writes with tenderness, but also with toughness. And so John concludes his powerful first letter here with one final warning to these believers at the church of Ephesus and through the recorded scriptures here to us as well. It's almost like when a son or a daughter leaves home to go on a trip and, and dad calls out, hey, be careful driving. Recently, my son Tyler went on a road trip to Dallas, Texas to see a friend. In fact, he went with a friend to see a friend. And guess what I said to him before he left? Tyler, be careful driving. I, uh, my wife does a lot of driving as well for her job. She's a physical therapist and does home health care. And so she travels from home to home and and does that part-time three days a week. And so inevitably, in the mornings before she leaves or I leave, guess what I will tell her? Darla, be careful driving today. Be careful driving. Now, there's there's a lot said in those words. Those words mean so much more than just don't wreck the car. I don't want to have to pay for it. Those words mean, Darla, I love you. Those words mean, hey, you're my wife and I want you to make it back home to us. Those words mean, Tyler, you're part of this family. Yes, drive carefully, but you mean something to us. There's a lot in those words there. And in much the same way, John writes here in verse 21, seven words here, little children, keep yourselves from idols, amen. In other words, let it be. This is true. And so here's what i believe john is trying to communicate to us in this one little verse as he concludes this whole book five chapters for us this is the concluding it's his last words and last words have meaning last words are often what we remember and so this is what he chooses to end with and i think what he's trying to say here is this we're redeemed to worship the true god but we're prone to wander to false gods so keep yourselves from idols now at first glance this verse seems like an odd ending to john's letter in fact to be real honest with you on the surface this ending is rather perplexing If you look at how other New Testament letters end, you'll see what I mean. For example, Paul's letters. You look at the letters that Paul wrote, such as Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and so forth. He he almost inevitably ends with some kind of benediction. That is a a prayer for the the readers. Or he ends with some kind of blessing for those who are reading. Giving them encouragement as he signs off his letters. Uh, But John ends this letter with a warning. And it's a a frank warning. It's a terse warning here. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's also perplexing because nowhere in this letter has John even mentioned the word idols before. He hasn't even talked about this. It's not there. So, So why here at the end? Why now? Why all of a sudden at the end of the book does John conclude with a final warning against idolatry? Now what is familiar to us, hopefully it's familiar to you, is John calling us here little children. We've seen this term before. It's a parental term that John has used over and over again throughout the book. It's a parental term of affection and love. And it's a a term that John uses to let us know that he loves us like a father loves his own children. And now John is ending his letter By calling us one last time, little children. Why? Because it's the perfect term to communicate not only his love for us here at the end, but also his great concern for us in view of the dangers confronting us as Christ followers. And so John's final warning is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And by calling us little children, John is also reminding us of something else. He's reminding us once again that we are God's children. You go back to what he said in this letter, and he reminds us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been born of God, and we are loved by God. We are His beloved children. In other words, we are redeemed by God to worship God. And that's what John is reminding us here in those two simple words, little children. But like little children who are often prone to wander off. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You take your toddler to the park and before long you talk to your spouse or you do something else and you look back and you're like, where did they go? He's gone. I mean, that was constantly with Jack. You took Jack anywhere and he was like, Darla, hang on to him. Because he's going to wander off. Little kids are prone to wander off. In the same way John understands that about us as God's little children, we are prone to wander off, get this, to worship false gods. And so John's final warning to us as God's little children is, keep yourselves from idols. Now let's unpack that a little bit. What John means by that. What does that mean for us even today? Well, notice the first point here. Idol worship is an ever-present temptation. Idol worship is an ever-present temptation. In fact, you don't have to go very far in reading the Old Testament to see that idol worship is in fact an ever-present temptation. Just as the Israelites, the people God redeemed out of the bondage in Egypt to worship Him in the Promised Land. And in worshiping God, they would proclaim the fame of God's name to all the peoples in the world. And so what happens? you know the story? God redeems the people of Israel through His mighty acts of power and He brings them to Mount Sinai where He gives His people the famous Ten Commandments. Now guess what the first two commandments deal with? Idol worship. The first two commandments are all about idol worship. The first commandment says in Exodus 20 verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment says you shall not make for yourself any carved image. But get this, while Moses was on Mount Sinai at the top, getting those commandments, the people were at the bottom of the mountain doing what? You got it, making an idol that looked like a cow. A golden calf they called it. Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and then his brother Aaron had the audacity to tell him, "Uh, Moses, I don't know what happened. I just threw this stuff in the fire, and look what came out. But nothing was more tragic for the people of Israel. Down through their long history, no temptation more threatened the well-being of God's people than the idolatry surrounding them. Again and again, the prophets warned the people of God to avoid idol worship. And again and again, God's messengers were ignored time after time and ignored with devastating consequences to the people of God. You go to the New Testament. Idol worship is just as prevalent in the New Testament. Idolatry was an issue that threatened the very spread of the gospel as we have seen in our study through the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul devotes a significant amount of discussion to idol worship in the books of 1 Corinthians. He deals with it again in Ephesians and Colossians. And now you come to John here, and there was plenty of idolatry in John's own backyard when he writes the book here of 1 John. John lived in the city of Ephesus. One of the central cities of idolatry in the Roman world at that time where the Temple of Diana was built. In fact, this temple was later deemed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in the center of the temple stood the great goddess Diana robed in a veil of Persian silk. As you might imagine, the worship of Diana was at an all-time fever pitch in the city here of Ephesus. Inside the very temple... Sexual orgies, drunkenness, and drug-induced rituals of worship was practiced, commonly practiced. Outside the temple, her priests would sell little replicas of the temple and even images of the goddess Diana. You go to Acts chapter 19, which we will see as we continue our series in Acts, what we'll pick up again next Sunday. But you go to Acts 19, Paul caused a huge commotion, a huge uproar and disturbance with the silversmiths who made these idols when he preached Jesus as the only true God. And that the gods made with hands are not gods. Furthermore, we know from Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that the Christians in Ephesus were tempted to compromise with their culture of idol worship in order to avoid persecution. And so John was writing to a church here that lived and breathed in a culture of idolatry. And idolatry abounds today as well. The fact of the matter is, every culture throughout history has always had its own idols. As John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idol factory. In other words, we are constantly making idols of the heart. Douglas O'Donnell writes in his commentary, the whole world lives in idolville. And so when you think about it, John's final warning here is exactly what we need in light of the ever-present temptation to worship idols. Now... Perhaps we should stop and ask the question, what is an idol? Because I'm sure we all have our own ideas of an idol. Let me give you a simple definition or description here in your notes. An idol is anything that takes the rightful place of God in your life. It's anything that takes the rightful place of God in your life. Now let's be honest. We are prone to make idols of almost anything. Whatever you cling to for ultimate reality and security is your idol. Whatever you give your heart to other than God is an idol. Idolatry is anything you love, enjoy, and pursue more than God, more than Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer says in his commentary, Keeping the Ten Commandments, Your God is whatever you seek serve, love, and allow to control you. And believe me, there are plenty of idols that people worship today. These gods are pursued by billions of people every day, ready to sit upon the throne of your heart. What's interesting is Packard goes on, he calls these gods of our day the gods of pleasure, the gods of possessions, and the gods of position. He also categorizes them as the gods of the stomach, the gods of shekels, and the gods of sex. He also writes in the same book here, the list of God's list endless for anything that allows anyone to run his life has become his God. In fact, I just read a blog of Francis Chan this week, and in this blog he's talking about some of the modern day idols that we as Christians in America have. One of them that he talks about specifically is the family, and how we worship the family, and especially our kids. Our kids are now the modern day idols of most Christians. And Francis Chan talks about how we need to come to the point where we release our kids to God so that we can go full on in the mission of God. Because oftentimes when it comes to cultural Christians in America, we, the kids is what's hanging us up from going 100% into the mission that God has for us. Interesting article. And in my opinion, he was right on. In other words, idol worship is giving anything or anyone the place that rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ. Timothy Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, and he's written extensively and insightfully about modern-day idolatry. And in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Keller says this, An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything you seek to give your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. We tend to think that idols are, quote, bad things. But that's rarely the case. In fact, the better something is, the more likely we think it can satisfy our deepest needs. And that's why when we turn a good thing, such as family, kids, job, career, you name anything, sports, music, anything, anything that's, quote, good... When you turn a good thing into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. In other words, it becomes an idol that we worship. And so anything can be an idol, especially the very best things. These things, no, they're not idols made of wood and stone like in John's day or Paul's day necessarily. Or if you go overseas or somewhere around the world... No, here in America, our idols are much differently. The idols we deal with, the ever-present idols we struggle with, are the idols of the heart. Keller says we can identify our idols by asking ourselves three questions. The first question is, what do you love? Whatever we daydream about, whatever we enjoy imagining, whatever captures our affections and provides us with a sense of significance and worth can be an idol. So what is it you love? His second question is, what do you trust? Because whatever we look to give us a sense of security, control, and confidence can be an idol. Often the thing we fear losing the most can be an idol. So what do you love? What do you trust? And then the third question is, what do you obey? You see, God should be our only Lord and Master. But whatever you love and trust, you also inevitably end up serving Whatever controls us is our master. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. And so we are typically controlled by what we love, trust, and obey. So whatever or whoever that is, that's your idol. Is idolatry a thing of the past? Is idol worship dead? Far from it. Idol worship is an ever-present temptation. Therefore, John's first, final warning is to keep yourselves from idols. Which brings us to our second point here. And that is to guard your heart from idol worship. Guard your heart from idol worship. See, the danger of idol worship is bound up in the fact that we were created and then redeemed by God to worship the true God. And for this reason, everyone will worship. We must worship. That's the way we were created. We are created to worship, and we're redeemed to worship the true God. Al Mohler writes in his book, Words from the Fire, he says, the human soul will find an object of worship either on the shelf, on the altar, or in the mirror. Rebecca Manley Pippert puts it this way in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. Playing God is not just difficult, it's impossible. So we have to look elsewhere for a backup, a homemade God substitute. We thus spend our lives swinging between the impossible, that is playing God, and the inadequate, relying on anything short of God to be God. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, he got it right when he said concerning some of the leaders of his day. in Ezekiel 14:3, he says, "These men have set up idols in their hearts." No wonder John warns us here. No wonder his last words to us, his little children. Keep yourselves from idols. Now this word keep that he uses, it's an interesting word. It actually means to guard against. So John's saying keep yourselves, guard against. It refers to standing like an armed guard, ready for any and every attack that's going to come your way. That's the... The word picture John's using here. And in John's own mind, these attacks are going to take place. It's not a matter of if, but when. And so he warns us to be ready, to be on guard. Watch out. Be careful. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians ten fourteen. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so John's warning here, it even has an urgency to it. In other words, There's nothing nonchalant about these last words. Because idol worship is an ever-present temptation, John is exhorting us and he's saying, listen, you must persevere in this. You must persevere in guarding your heart from idol worship. This is no small thing here. One of the dangers of idol worship is that we always conform to what we worship. Psalm 115 verse 8 reminds us in speaking about idols. He says, Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Warren Wiersbe said it this way in his commentary on 1 John, An idol represents that which is false and empty, and a person who lives for idols will himself become false and empty. So mark it down. Idolaters always resemble the idols they worship. You become as shallow or empty as the idol you worship. You pursue sexual experiences outside of God's design in marriage, and you will end up sexually dissatisfied and disillusioned. You pursue money as your God, and you will end up embittered by those who have more than you. You pursue the praise of people. You make that your God, to have the praise come down on you. You want their approval. You want their applause. And you will end up consumed by your own achievement. You will be consumed by the utter despair at having accomplished so little and at receiving so little acclaim. You pursue the shallow, temporary idols of beauty and body. And as you age, you will die a thousand times in frustration and fear before they finally bury you. Guard, John says. Guard against worshiping false gods. Accept no substitute. And here's why. Let me give you two reasons why John says this except no substitutes. The first reason is, Jesus is the only God that's worth worshiping. Jesus is the only God worthy of worshiping and worth becoming more like. What's interesting as well, it's this word idol that John uses. It comes from a particular Greek word that can mean, get this, shadows or phantoms. ironically then what John is saying is that an idol is just a shadow or a phantom of something that's real the implication of that is an idol is something that has absolutely no substance to it we think it does we think it will satisfy we think it's tangible we think it's real because a lot of times we can actually touch and feel and see them but in the end It has no substance. John's warning in verse 21 to us is actually in direct contrast to the reality of Jesus that he emphasized in the previous verse, verse 20. Go back to that verse. It's in your notes. Look in your Bibles. Look again. We saw this last Sunday, but let me read it to us again. John says, and we know that the Son of God has come. He's come in the flesh. And he has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. In the last sentence, this is the what kind of God? True God and eternal life. John, in other words, is saying that in opposite of these phantom idols, which have no substance, he holds up Jesus Christ to us and says, Now, that's the true God. That's reality. Anything else is just a shallow, temporary substitute. But there's another reason John says, accept no substitutes, and that is the worship of idols leads to eternal death. The worship of Jesus leads to eternal life. Idols say they will give life. When God says only Jesus Christ provides eternal life. Idols promise, but they never deliver. Whereas God says that Jesus Christ is both the provider and the deliverer. And so guard yourself from worshiping the idols of pleasure, the idols of possessions, the idols of power, the idols of position. Your heart will never be satisfied with any of these false gods. Only Jesus Christ truly and eternally satisfies. Now what's interesting in all of this is from start to finish through this whole book, five chapters from start to finish, To finish, John has gone to great lengths to tell us that the ultimate reality is God through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is the true God. And in John's own words, only Jesus is eternal life. And so failure to worship Jesus Christ alone is to fall prey to idolatry. In essence, everything John has said in these five chapters is really contained in this final warning. It's his summary of everything he has written. The false teachers in John's day were promoting idolatry in their false teaching about Jesus. They were promoting a false image of Jesus Christ, these false teachers that he was combating against. In other words, these false teachers, they were denying Jesus' coming in the flesh, they were denying his dying for our sins, and they were denying Jesus' teaching on love and obedience. In his book, What is the meaning of idols? Benjamin Merkel writes, and I quote his words here, Those who claim to be Christian but do not believe the truth concerning Jesus, do not live a righteous life in obeying God's commands, and do not love others, are in danger of idol worship. This is an idol because they have created a religion that is false. This is a religion that man has created and not that of the apostolic faith. In other words, what the apostles have now written about. This is nothing short of idolatry, he writes. To embrace a form of Christianity that allows one to deny the truth about Jesus, not live a godly life, or not love others, is to create an idol. And that is something all Christians must constantly guard against. Folks, that is still true today. That is is as true today as it was when John wrote these words to the church at Ephesus. Invariably, idolaters, here's what happens. We make up our own gods to suit our own desires and our own preferences. Idolaters refuse, and here's the core issue here, They refuse to submit to the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. At the root of idolatry is the idol of self. The idolater hasn't submitted the throne of his life to the true God. That is the bottom line issue. Rather, he or she wants their will. They want their way. And God forbid, nobody's going to tell me any differently. I'm my own God. I will live my own life my own way. And so they create a God that aligns then with what they want, with what suits their desires, their preferences instead of submitting their life to the Word of God and to the God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Tragically, this amounts to a God of love, but not justice. A God of grace, but not wrath. A God of heaven, but not hell. And so this final warning, oh, it is so very fitting, not only for John's day, but also for our day. And so John comes to the end of his letter and he lovingly warns us. Listen, he is a father who has great concern for us, great love for us. And so he doesn't come as a grumpy old man. He's not come badgering us. He's not coming with hateful tone. No, no, no. He comes with love and concern, and compassion for us as His little children. And He warns us, little children, listen to me. Give your ear to me. Keep yourselves from idols. Watch out. Be careful. Stand guard. Because every day you are on a collision course with an idol. Sam Gordon writes in his book, Living in the Light. Anything that squeezes God out of number one position in your life is an idol. Anything that relegates God to a lower rung on the ladder is an idol. Anything that moves Him to the fringes of your life is an idol. The cure for idolatry, though... Isn't just to remove the idols from our lives, but also to replace our idols with the one true God, Jesus Christ. Are you clinging to idols? Are we? What idols are in our hearts even right now? I would venture to say that all of us struggle with one or two or three. There's a place in our heart where we have yet to give up ownership of this or that. And it's in the recesses of our heart. And if we're truly honest, we'll say, yeah, that, this thing, this area, this part of my life, this is an idol I struggle with. And John is saying to us, accept no substitutes. Accept no substitutes. No substitutes. Jesus is the only God worthy of our worship. Anything else is a shallow, temporary substitute that will not deliver. It will leave you wanting more. And so the very things that you think will bring you satisfaction, will bring you meaning in life, bring you purpose, bring you joy, in the end, it doesn't. In fact, in the end, listen to me, idols almost always lead to destruction of our lives, either here in this life or in the next life. And so John's warning to us is so relevant and so practical. And so John pleads with us, like a loving father, Tyler, Darla, be careful as you drive. And John says, Christ followers, keep yourselves from idols as I sign off. Keep yourselves from idols. And in saying that, he means so much more. In saying that, he means worship the true God. Worship Jesus Christ. And so, notice this last thing in your notes here. Let us worship the God who loved us. Let us worship the God who sent His Son to save us. Let us worship the God who gave His Spirit to indwell us. Let us worship the God who will one day bring us into His eternal presence. That is the God that John pleads with us to worship. It is the God he has been talking about through these five chapters. You know, the cross of Jesus Christ helps us to guard our hearts from idol worship. And communion... Or the Lord's Supper is a visible reminder that Jesus is the true God that we worship. The Lord's Supper, get this, do you realize it is a picture here? And so what we're getting ready to participate in is, is a visual reminder. It is a picture of a Savior who gave His life so that you could have eternal life. Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross so that you could experience the forgiveness of sins so that you could have eternal life. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful reminder for us as we conclude this series. A reminder that Jesus Christ is the true God whom we worship. And so as you come to the Lord's table, let the bread, And the juice reminds you that Jesus Christ is the only God that's worthy of your worship. For Jesus is the only God who died on the cross for your sins so that you could have eternal life. And as you eat the bread and drink the juice, give thanks. As you come and take it back to your seat, and as you sit there, offer up a prayer of praise to God the Father. Offer up a prayer of gratitude for loving you enough and sending His Son to die for you in your place so that you could have eternal life. But also use this time to renew your commitment as a Christ follower. Your commitment to follow Jesus and to worship Him as the only God in your life. Use this time as a time of confession of some idols in your own heart. God, forgive me for worshiping other things other than you. This is a time to be reminded of all of these things as we come to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. And as we bow our heads, and as the instrumentalists come, and they begin to play, I want to just encourage you to take a few moments to prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper. They're going to play for a few minutes here, and you go to the Lord in prayer. You do business. You prepare your heart. Lord, we come to you and we thank you our hearts are heavy because we know if, we, if we're truly honest with you, I'm, I'm sure many of us here struggle with the temptations of idol worship in our culture today. And so, Lord, forgive us of our sins. And we accept your forgiveness that comes through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for providing a way. And it's already done. Jesus has done everything on the cross for us and through his resurrection that we can now be reconciled to you and be restored to a right relationship with you. And so, Lord, redirect our thoughts and our minds, our hearts back to you as we participate in communion here. We thank you for the truth of John in this letter. And I pray that every one of us would leave here with the assurance of our salvation. And perhaps there are some who are still not sure. Lord, you would open their eyes, you would open their heart to see their need for the Savior. And they would cry out in faith and run to him, seeking his forgiveness, seeking his gift of eternal life and placing their faith and trust in him. And so, Lord, let us prepare our hearts even now. In your name we pray. Amen.